Okay. If you've been coming here long enough, uh, two questions I like to ask regularly. Who are you? What are you doing here? Right? Is that me? What's going on here with this? Am I hearing something or can you guys hear it too or not? You can hear it? Yeah. Okay. Can everybody hear it? Okay. It's fine. Good. Thank you. Okay, here's, the, here's how I want to uh, ask that question, this, those questions this morning. Who are we? What are we doing here? And I mean that literally. Like, what are we doing in this space here? And I'd say probably one of my favorite features of the building is that window right there. I love windows, I love light, I love sunlight. Uh, But the reason I love that window, I know it can be a distraction on Sunday mornings with all the cars driving by and all of that, that's part of the reason why I love it. It's a constant reminder of why we're here. This church doesn't exist for itself. We don't exist to hold worship services. Crossroads Bible Church exists for the city of Grand Rapids. To serve it, to love it, to reach it, to pray for it. And uh, that window reminds me of why we're here. So if you ever get bored when I'm preaching or anything like that, you just want to look out the window, go for it. Uh, And and be reminded. Um, This morning we have uh, with us Justin Narducci, who... Man, there's many things I could say about him. He's, he's a father of three kids, a uh, wonderful wife, marriage of 12 years. Uh, but he is also the president of a, of a ministry called Life Water. And I just want to read uh, what, what I downloaded this week about what Life Water is. You're going to like this, Barry. As a Christian organization, we are called by Jesus to love and serve the poor in a dignifying, empowering, and transformational manner. While many Christian organizations are called to provide disaster relief, microfinance, build houses, or plant churches, LifeWater International is called to bring water, health, and hope to the world's most vulnerable poor. We believe, as Jesus taught, that when we serve the poor, we are serving him. We treat each partner, community, family, and person with dignity and respect. We view every interaction as an opportunity to reflect God's word in both words and deeds. And uh, this morning, uh, it's an honor that we have Justin here. Just to remind us why we're here. We didn't come down here to exist for ourselves. And this morning, Justin's going to, through God's word, teach us and help us, give us marching orders as to why we're here for Grand Rapids, for the nations. Can I get an amen there? We fired up about that, you guys? Amen. Justin, come on up. Hey, let's welcome this guy, okay, all the way from uh, California, or is it Arizona? Good morning. Can you hear me? Do we have the mic on? I'm going to steal one of these. So the last time I was in Grand Rapids, it was 2004 in January. And um, 
I made a vow at that point, deep in my soul, that I would never come back. So <laughs> Rosa, Rosa was kind enough to twist my arm, and I'm really honored to be with you today. Um, probably like churches around the nation, Mother's Day, we're going to talk about global poverty, right? Um, <laughs> of course, it's a natural progression. And I think actually that says a lot about your church. Um, and so I'm honored to be with you this morning. It's actually a very important topic, and um, our world is changing. I, I wonder how many of you have heard about the girls in Nigeria. Raise your hand if you heard about that. Think about that. There's 200 some odd girls, okay? Smaller than most high schools in rural Nigeria, and we've all heard about that. Our world is becoming increasingly interconnected, and the plight of our neighbor all over the world has become almost in our neighborhood. We, we know their names, these girls. It's unbelievable. And so I want to talk about that today. You see, these global challenges that we see in our world are not problems to be solved, but are people to be served. And how we serve really does matter. I'm going to say that one more time because it's the key thesis of my talk this morning. The global challenges we will face on an increasingly frequent basis in our world today are not problems to be solved, but are actually people to be served. And how we serve really does matter. Um, Let's begin by opening our Bibles this morning. Luke chapter 10. Many of you have probably heard of this passage before. I only know three passages in the Bible, so I keep teaching them. It's a very helpful thing. Um, That's a a joke. Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I'm going to read the passage to you. It goes like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Can I just pause? How awesome would it be to have Jesus say you answered correctly? Am I the only one that thinks that would be awesome? Okay. So 29, verse 29. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Yay. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asks, and who is my neighbor? And that is the question we're going to wrestle with today. Jesus, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, 
the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's a beautiful passage. Let's pray as we begin this morning. God, we pause in the busyness of life, um, family gatherings, celebrations, and we want to learn more about what it means to go do likewise in a world that is increasingly interconnected um, and where the needs of our neighbors are both geographically close and geographically far. You've created this world. You love all people, and so we simply want to hear from you this morning. Uh, God, even I pray that you transform my heart as we hear from your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians, our love is Jesus. And our passion as we follow King Jesus is twofold. One, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see this in Matthew 28, another passage, right? But there's also this passage in Luke that should be somewhat troubling to us because we have this very clear call to obedience in what we often hear as the great commandment, to love God with all of our being, right? And to love our neighbor as ourself. And I want us to explore this morning, reflect upon that troubling question that the the student of the law had with Jesus. Who is our neighbor? And taking it a step further, what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? And when we think about that question, the particular context I want us to explore it in today is what does it mean to minister in a world of broken and hurting people and to go and do likewise among them? I want to confess to you that these are questions that have challenged me. I grew up in the church. Um, And in many ways, I've wrestled with them for over 10 years and have become a living experiment in practical theology that basically muddles its way out of my life every day. And sometimes, more often than not, if I were to be really honest and really transparent with you, it's just messy. Ten years of experience, I have more convictions about what the answer might be and fewer concrete details about how we actually do what we need to do. And perhaps this is true for all of us. As we walk through life as disciples of Christ, we started with a firm and deeply rooted answers to every question, and then the mystery of God and the revelation of his spirit cause us to become less sure of ourselves and the answers that we thought we held to be true. In that process of discipleship, we become better learners and listeners. We become more empathetic, and our conversations seem to be seasoned with more grace. So how do we go about answering this question? And as I work through that, I realize that how we even look at the question is just as important as the answer itself. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Okay, when I, when I first began working in community development, which is how, how poor communities develop and improve their quality of life, I had one of those um, transformational experiences. You guys all probably have them at some point in your life. I was in Phoenix, which is where I grew up, and was working with an organization called Food for the Hungry. I'm sure some of you have heard of them, Christian Relief and Development Organization. And um, I, was, I was a youth pastor, and so we were taking kids on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. Who's been to the Dominican Republic? Good, a few of you. No, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great country, not that far away. 
Um, and part of their short-term trip orientation was that leaders had to begin to understand how Food for the Hungry works and how they minister. And so I went to one of these conferences, and it was a small room, maybe even just the size of this stage, and had this transformational experience. So this gentleman stands up. The front of the room, he's an older guy. His name is Darrow Miller. And he puts up a slide that looks just like this one. And he asks the question, what do you see? And so I ask you the question this morning. Oh, I'm glad that's the right slide. What do you see? For some, we see a beautiful young lady looking out into the distance. And for others, what do you see? An old woman, right? And the point he said was, regardless of what you see, the reality is that they are both there. The way we see the world he went on, is through a pair of glasses, just like those that I'm wearing. And we all have glasses. We just don't all have physical glasses, right? It's called a worldview. And our worldview shapes everything that we think and do. He defined the worldview as this. The next slide. Our worldview is a set of assumptions that are held consciously or unconsciously in faith about the basic makeup of the world and how it works. You see, what we, what we think consciously and what we think subconsciously about how the world works greatly impacts the way that we see our neighbor and the way that we see our role in serving our neighbors. So, we all have worldviews. And a worldview is that lens through which we find ourselves viewing the world. Who, then, is our neighbor? Is your neighbor literally the person living next to you in your neighborhood? Is it the elderly man sitting idle at a nursing home in Kalamazoo? Is it the orphan girl in China looking for a family? Is it the mother who walks eight hours a day to gather water for her family? Is it the children in Zambia served by the family here this morning? She is, and they are. And I've become more and more convinced that the answer to this question is yes. Any way you ask it, who is your neighbor? Regardless of the context, the answer is yes. And friends, the more we know about the world and the more, the more deeply troubled we should be about the plight of our neighbors. At the risk of sounding alarmist, I want to shape the global reality that is happening outside of our country in large part because the reality of our Jericho Road is unbelievable. One in every five people currently live in extreme poverty. It's defined as living less than $1.25 a day. We still have 780 million people without access to basic water sources. That's about one in every nine people. 2.5 billion, this is the world that I live in, who don't have access to a toilet. 2.5 billion people don't have access to a toilet to properly handle their human waste. 3.5 billion people have never heard about the gospel of Jesus. And we know that there are ripple effects of this poverty, both in spirit and in physical form. 
We've heard about the trafficking of young girls in Asia. We've heard about slavery and forced indenturehood for 28 million people. We've seen the crisis in Syria and have seen families and children being gassed by their own government. South Sudan, the world's newest country, is now fighting with itself, destroying its own people. We've heard of pirates in Somalia. We know the Ukraine and Russian conflict. There's this amazing thing happening um, in developing nations where you have rural to urban migration, overcrowding, exasperated slums and city centers. It's a normal Mother's Day talk, right? I, I grew up in an evangelical tradition that frankly didn't know what to do with the plight of our global neighbor. We really struggled through the separation of what we were thought were spiritual activities and that which, you know, like evangelism, discipleship, prayer, from that which was physical, poverty, science, economics, and justice. Let me show you this next slide. In my evangelical tradition that I grew up with, God and the spiritual activities were above, and the natural and physical activities were below. Admittedly, this was a subconscious classification, but we all operated that way, and it greatly shaped our actions, and it greatly shaped our inactions. For example, we saw these global problems that I just talked about as secular or physical, and then we would be less likely to respond to them our logic would hold that there certainly aren't Jesus' solutions to these problems, and therefore there's no role for the church to play. Again, this is all subconscious, but I think many of you who grew up in the church had this feeling. And what we see is that this worldview we grew up with is inconsistent with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It blinds us from loving our neighbor as ourselves. Even for those who suffer, there tends to be more going on than just physical problems or spiritual turmoil. It's truly a both-and proposition rather than an either-or framework. And over the last 10 years, I've been so encouraged as we see more and more Christians looking at vulnerable children, women, families in distress through a new lens that removes the divide of sacred and secular, and it's messy but it's formed out of obedience to this great commandment to love God as our as to love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is a beautiful mess. And it is the mess that Jesus himself found himself in all the time. You'll recall in Luke 4, his first sermon, I'm going to read it to you. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed, these are his people. And so I grew up with this tradition that said, okay, those are spiritual things. He's talking about spiritually poor spiritually, those who are bound in prison, those who are blind but don't see the truth, the oppressed who don't understand that God's freedom can release them. And I say, yes, that is true. But it's also really poor people. It's also actual prisoners. It's actual people who are suffering from an ailment, a physical ailment, and it's people who are oppressed structurally. It's a both-and proposition. It's not an either-or 
reality. And this was the mess Jesus found himself in. These were his people. At the end of the book of Matthew, or at the end of the, um, yeah, book of Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to read another passage from you. It's uh, verse 31. And again, we see the same thing. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous on his right will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Someone who's hungry someone who's naked, someone who's thirsty, someone who's incarcerated, someone who's sick. This is where Jesus was and is, and it is where I want to be. He is in the margins of life with vulnerable people, with the dying and the destitute. He is in the mess of life, and the message of good news in the midst of the mess is transformative for the healer. So my journey has been interesting. Over the last 10 years, I've began to see the world through a new lens. And the gospel finally made sense. Once, what I once thought was a ticket out of here into heaven with angels singing and golden streets is now an ever-present reality of the kingdom of God on earth as it should be, as it is in heaven. Because our neighbors are everywhere. Our neighbors are hurting from needs that are both physical and spiritual in nature. Because in reality, we are all hurting. We are all in need. And we are all dealing with physical and spiritual challenges. So, what are we going to do about it? I need a glass of water for that. Let's go back to the glasses for a second. As Westerners, we're really good at fixing things. I can't actually fix anything, but my father can. So I know this. I learned it over time. If there's a problem, we have a solution, right? And if we're really crafty, we can even monetize that solution and turn it into a business. We're really good at that in the West, right? So think about the water problem for a second. There's 780 million people who don't have water. We need to provide them access to water. Problem, no water. Solution, Water, right? Why do I need a job? This is not that complicated. So I deal with this a lot. What's the big deal, Justin? People will say to me, just drill some wells and give people water. This particular example hits very close to home for us at LifeWater because we actually began in 1977 with teams of volunteers 
who came from across North America, and we would go all over the world drilling wells at churches and at orphanages. It was a beautiful demonstration of the gospel in action. People were getting their hands dirty. They were serving. It was awesome. Except for one thing. Over time, it became apparent that we were only as effective as the teams of volunteers that we could send. So if a team was down in the Dominican Republic or in Haiti, for example, we couldn't do anything in Ethiopia. Thank you so much. Thank you. We couldn't do anything in Ethiopia. So we were bound by our reach through where the volunteers were. There was also this other thing that was happening. And we learned this over time, right? There was a challenge to the understanding of whose well is this? If the North Americans came and drilled the well, it seems like it's their well. It wasn't the community's well. So when it broke down, as they always do, then the North Americans would need to come and fix the well, right? So you can see the problem that began to take shape. These North Americans are like running around the world with their heads cut off because they were the ones with whom the activity was dependent upon. It only took us 30 years to figure this out, right? Um, we're a quick bunch. But this was, this was the reality. We had a problem-solution paradigm, and it is the predominant worldview. It is the lens that we inherently see the world through today, each of us sitting here. It's subconscious. It's, it's what Daryl Miller talked about. We see things through a certain lens. We don't mean it to be that way, but it is. We're from the West, and that's how we see things. Problem, solution. There is another way. These global challenges are not problems to be solved. They are people to be served. And the way that our Western mind thinks about solving problems and even serving people is inherently top-down and can create unintended consequences. Our good intentions are simply not enough. What do I mean? Okay, there are many ways to serve people. I want to talk about two specific ways today. If you're taking notes, this is where you actually want to take a note, okay? Um, Our default method of meeting needs, though not intended to be, creates a power imbalance. What do I mean? Power is held by the donor or the giver, and it is received by the beneficiary, the person that we are serving. This is not a bad thing. In fact, it's what we saw take place in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? A person is hurting. The Samaritan goes out of their way and takes extremely good care of him, even inviting another person to care for that man at a great expense to the donor. It's the volunteers drilling well in Haiti, Or an example that hits closer to home. I, like probably some of you, built a home for someone in Mexico. Someone in Mexico is living in terrible conditions. So we put together a team of people. We raise some money. We go down to Mexico. We'll even do it on our spring break, right? And we'll build a home for someone in need. We pray for them. We bless them with a new home. This is a good thing and we should celebrate it. We should also properly Call it what it is. In development terminology, this is called relief work. Okay? In relief work, power is held by the server and is not transferred to the person being served. Relief work is good and it's necessary, especially at critical times. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't break down the cycle of poverty and it doesn't generally have a lasting transformative effect. What happens when the well breaks down? How are we going to build a house for everyone in Mexico? 
What happens when the roof of that house we built needs to be repaired? These are the realities that happen over time, and they're very hard to deal with in a relief context. Um, I, I talk about this a lot. So sometimes I use an analogy of a spider. Even though it has many legs and it can, can potentially reach far, if you cut the head off the spider, it dies. And in relief work, if you take yourself out of the equation, nothing happens. So let's contrast relief work with what is commonly referred to as development work. Okay? And I don't want to get into too much detail because I've spent pretty much 10 years trying to figure this out. So we could talk a long time for it. But in, in relief, in, in development work, we're looking at a different animal. I want you to think of it like a starfish, okay? Because if you chop an arm off the starfish, which are under each of your seats this morning, it multiplies. A starfish actually multiplies. If you cut its arm off, two new ones sprout. See, you learned something today, right? Don't miss that point. When you, when you serve people in development context, there's actually a transfer of power. So even when you go away, the people benefiting from your gift can share that gift with others. I know this is getting a little tricky. So let's go back to the Mexico example for a second, okay? In a relief work paradigm, we understand that Justin and his buddies build a house and bless a family. Good. In a development paradigm, Justin and his buddies take six, ten weeks of their time and listen to the family. We hear the family identify their area of need. They may not even need a house. Assuming they do, however, Justin and his buddies work with the family to co-labor together. We build the house in such a way that the family is co-invested. We're not providing all the resources. We're sharing that expense. We're not hammering all the nails. We're helping them do that with us. We are co-laboring. This is done in such a way that that family can build a house long after we're gone. In fact, they might even be able to build houses for their entire neighborhood using the same thing that they learned, that we learned together. Relief work stops when you cut the head off, just like a spider dies when you cut its head off. Development work continues and even gathers steam after the initial work is started. It's much more like a starfish. In my own context, we began realizing that training national organizations how to drill wells and co-laboring with them through the process was much more effective than sending teams of volunteers to provide service themselves. The hard part is for us in the West, it's less rewarding. We don't get our hands dirty. We don't feel that sense of accomplishment. And that's something we have to deal with as we serve. But there is a power that comes with nationals serving one another and understanding all the cultural sensitivities and nuances that go into serving well. Jesus training his disciples was extremely starfishy. The church of Jesus today is very starfishy. We don't have a hierarchy or a structure. Our global ministry to the poor is very spidery. Sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's appropriate, and sometimes it's not. And our ministry to the poor and the vulnerable requires a new way of viewing our worldview, understanding that we're seeing things through a lens that may not be consistent with what is most effective. Martin Luther King famously stated this, and I'll close with this. 
On one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day, we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed, so men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's road, life's highway. True compassion is more than flipping a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. The global challenges facing the poor and the vulnerable in our world today are not problems to be solved. They are people to be served with. And how we serve our neighbors matters. People matter. And my prayer is that God would grant us wisdom, patience, and humility as we go and do likewise. Thank you. Do you want me to stay up here? Do you want me to go down? What do you want me to do? Yeah, Where do you, you want can, me? I'm, I'm uh, 9.43. Good. We have a few minutes. Um. Can you put that one, that last slide up again? Not that one. I'm going to get to that. Okay. How many of you were here last week? Tell me, what term did I give this? Platonic dualism. And I know you guys are like, what's that? That's the lens that we look at the world God, the church, the Bible in the West. What is platonic dualism? Going all the way back to Plato, divided the world into two realities. What? Spiritual and physical. I, I didn't even ask Justin to share this this morning, and I'm back there, and I'm like, there it is. You see it? There's a spiritual, and there's the physical. That is not biblical. That is not the kingdom of heaven. To divide the world in those realities has allowed for the church to have a cop-out. Where it's all about me and God, and someday God taking me to heaven, where I can escape this bad, awful world, even this bad, awful body, That's like ripping Genesis 1 and page after page right out of your Bibles. God cares about your physical body. He's going to redeem it. And God so loves the world, every square inch of it. He made it. And we have been rescued and called into relationship with him For the world. For the world. To partner with God, namely on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, the prisoner. And that's why we, who are we, Crossroads? And what are we doing here? We just got our marching orders. And if you're kind of bored today and kind of like, why didn't I get a Mother's Day sermon? I'm going to tell every mom here,
bless God for you. I have the best mom in the world. Thank you, Mom. I know you're not here, but I'm going to say that to you today. From an earthly capacity, um, she gave me my capacity to love, whatever capacity I have to love. But we are not here to just do worship gatherings, sing songs, hear sermons. If that's what you want in a church, then we're not the right church for you. This is a church where God is raising up disciples. He's raising up an army of people who want to give their life for both the spiritual needs of the world and the physical needs of the world because that's the kingdom of heaven. And that's why when Justin, you come here, man, I'm just dancing this morning because I heard my marching orders. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock in this place, Justin is going to also be here. I want to give a special invite to a part of our community that today this this grouping of people, um, it's getting a little French revolutionist. Uh, I mean, okay, who am I talking about? I'm talking about the wealthy. I'm talking about uh, people who have been gifted to make money and to create wealth, which means you know how to create jobs. Because strategically, the church too has kind of maybe put you on the sideline. Our world is looking down on you. I want to elevate you because that's Genesis 1. You are fulfilling the creation mandate. God has gifted you to know how to create things and build things and make things. And, and this church wants to tap into your gift, celebrate it, and also steward it for the kingdom of heaven. So the end of it is not just so you can have your country club lifestyle. You can still belong to a country club, I don't care. But you're going to get a vision for how you can use that gift to give people some of their most basic needs, like a job. That's why I love this window. I'll go back to it. This window is why we're here. This real estate around us. I want to see God do a work of transformation. And I want us to be about prayer. I want us to be about uh, helping. But I also want it to be about creating jobs and bringing business and, and, and seeing God do both the spiritual and the physical through a motley crew like us. Can you believe it if God would do anything through us? But he wants to. So, all right. I've I've talked too much. Tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, I want you to be here. But let's end this morning uh, as a family just praying that God push this stuff into us and push it out of us. Is there any amens this morning? Or are you guys just like, I mean, you're just kind of looking at me. Um... We'll see. Maybe we'll only have half a church. Half, half of you guys will be back next week. That's all right. Jesus had 12, and he called it enough. All right? Let's pray. Let's <laughs> pray.